0: You've been stumbling. You've been fumbling. You've been trying to walk this Christian life and and continue in your sanctification. You You keep slipping up and being discouraged by that. But it's so encouraging to know that the Lord is able to make a stand. You're listening to a sermon series titled, Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit ThisIsShoreline.com. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for this opportunity to gather in your name to study your word. And Lord, we're asking your spirit to bring application to this very applicable text. Lord, would you minister to our hearts Remind us of the good news of the gospel, even as we study these powerful and important words from this text in Romans. We ask, Lord, now that you would be glorified and that you would teach us by your spirit. In Christ's name, we agree. Amen. Well, it seems like everyone these days on social media and in conversations has a very strong opinion about diet. Uh, there is the very vocal keto community. Have you heard of the keto? Of course you've heard of the keto community. And they remind us, wrap your hamburgers in lettuce, uh, even though that hamburger is saturated with grease and bacon. Just put lettuce wrap and you're winning. Of course, there's the vegan enthusiasts. And the vegan says, don't eat meat at all. Little known fact, but I don't know if you knew that the, the um, word vegan in the Greek uh, means poor hunter. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> No, if you're vegan, we love you, and uh, we pity you. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Of course, there's the cleanse diet. You need to uh, do a juice cleanse or a charcoal cleanse. Just cleanse your gut, and uh, you'll stay healthy. Some of us are on the seafood diet. We seafood, and <laughs> we eat it. Um, my favorite meme uh, that I have read or saw about uh, diet was, I'm just a boy standing in front of a salad, Wishing it were a donut. Uh, I love that one. love that one. Uh, I even read this week, though, about the tapeworm diet. True story. Tapeworm diet. I certainly can't endorse or encourage you uh, to do something extreme or disgusting like that. In fact, I'm not here to offer my judgment on diet whatsoever. And ironically, that's what Paul, the apostle, exhorts the church in Rome to consider in our passage this morning. Yes, Paul speaks about observing diets and observing specific days in the diary. But what we're going to see here is something more important under the surface. It's a mindset. It's an attitude. It's a perspective that helps shape what we, a covenant community of grace, looks like when we interact one with another. As we seek to do what, remember, Romans 12.1 exhorts us to do, and that is to offer our corporate bodies together as a living sacrifice in view of his mercies and to live a life pleasing to Him. How do we do that? How do we live a life that is pleasing to God? Well, what we're going to see today is that believers can often get opinionated about what pleasing God looks like. And we can say these are non-salvific issues. In other words, your salvation is not on the line in these matters. We call these disputable matters. And what happens is many Christians begin to major on the minors, We begin to make the secondary things the main thing, the primary thing. And we begin to think the way I follow the Lord is better than the way you follow the Lord. Now, again, we are not talking about things that are specifically referenced in Scripture. Uh, These are things that, of course, when Scripture is very abundantly clear we would then interpret the obscure passages from the clear passages, not the other way around. That's the tactic of false teachers. They take the obscure passages and try to shed light on the clear passages. And so when we look at this text today, we realize these are things that are these are secondary, and yet Christians quarrel over these things. Ray Steadman said that the favorite indoor sport of Christians is trying to change each other. And so this judgment of one believer to another believer can include a whole host of things it can include music styles movies television tobacco tattoos diets and days which we'll look at here even dress code just to name a few and again these are not matters of dogma or doctrine these are matters of disagreement if christians are sinning and breaking god's commands then yes we should and must go to our brother or sister in prayer, humility, and love, and encourage them to repent and walk in obedience to God's word. And we see that being modeled and practiced in our fellowship. But what we're going to study for the next few weeks, these are not matters of offense, uh, but opinion. These are not matters of creed, but matters of conscience. Remember, we are studying, we are reading what is arguably the greatest letter ever delivered from. Uh, you could say, in the history of the world, from from God to man. And Paul spends about 10% of this letter, Romans, speaking about conscience controversies in the church. Contextually, if this is your first Sunday or if you've been away for a while, we have been in a section of Romans where we keep being reminded that our covenant community of grace has one thing that governs us, and it's love. Love governs the church that it must be genuine and it must be sincere. We've been learning that love actually can't just be spoken, it has to be displayed as we serve one another. It can't be biased, but it has to be universal. We learned recently that the only acceptable debt that we continue to carry perpetually is that debt to love all. And so with love as the foundation, we can now approach chapters 14 and 15 as an application of what love looks like from one believer to another believer in these areas of how we handle disputable opinions or taboos. I'm sure this has never happened to you where you've gotten in a disagreement with a brother or sister in Christ about some of these side secondary issues. My, my, uh, I'm obviously being ironic here. Of course you have. And so what we're going to see in this particular text is that we are all servants of Jesus, So thus our perspective needs to shift from focusing on judging one another to focusing on together serving the Lord and serving and welcoming one another because we're fellow servants of the Lord and all of us will stand before one judge, the perfect and righteous judge. So if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, we're gonna look at these three sections today. We're gonna see the servants in verses one through four. We're gonna see the Lord or our Lord verses 5 through 9, and then we'll see the judgment seat, which can sound a little unnerving, but you'll see where we go with that uh, as the New Testament describes this judgment seat of Christ in verses 10 through 12. So that is our outline. Let's begin with this first section, starting with the first few words of verse 1. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith. Please circle that word or highlight that word one. You're going to see that word one repeated in these first few verses. In fact, look for the instances. We see it again in verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything. Then in verse 3, let not the one who despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So we seem to see two camps of believers here. First, we see one who is, quote, weak in faith, who eats only vegetables and who abstains. Now, for purposes of note-taking, we're going to call this group, what Paul calls them, Uh, we're going to call them the weak. And Paul says this first group may be tempted to pass judgment on the other camp and begin to quarrel over opinions. Again, not sin. Uh, We don't just express opinions on sin. No, we declare what God's word declares. I'm not just here to opine about sin. I'm here to actually declare what the scripture says. So this is another category. This is just a personal opinion. That's the first camp. The second camp, Paul says, quote, believes he may eat anything and is the one who eats. And Paul says this second group may be tempted to despise the weak, despise the first group. So what is happening here? What does he mean by weak? And what does he mean by uh, abstaining and eating? Well, look down at verse 5. Paul then adds a set of observances of particular days on the calendar. So like a puzzle, if you've ever done a puzzle, our family loves to do puzzles, you have to actually reference the box top to understand what's happening in each puzzle piece. So what's happening as we put this puzzle together, we have to understand the broader picture. In the letter of Romans, we keep seeing Paul address two groups of people. He's addressing Christians who have a Jewish nationality or ethnicity and Christians who have a Gentile ethnicity. So we could call them Jewish Christians, if you would, and Gentile Christians. By the way, time out. We don't need that ethnic moniker like black church or white church or Jewish Christian church. We don't need that. Uh, uh, even though the woke crowd continues to prefer to strum that broken guitar, no, we know that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek. So you may be Italian, and that means you like to talk loud and love pasta. But in regards to salvation, there's no select class in heaven as like the Italian Christian section of heaven. right? So there, there, we have to we, we don't necessarily overlook ethnicity. we We appreciate our diversity but that's not the qualifier. And and so we're all one in Christ and at the cross, there's level ground. Just had to say that real quick. So for a moment though, I want us to look back through Romans and see how much Paul has spoken to these two particular groups. He's referenced them over and over and over. And I'd like you to hold your place, please, here in Romans 14 and go with me back to chapter one. Just very briefly, I wanna walk through a few of these verses. Notice Romans 1 verse 16. If you don't have a Bible or you're watching online, you can uh, look on the screen. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, that was the order that it came in, and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. We see it right in the announcement of the gospel. Well, turn the page to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 9, says there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. This is universal. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek or the Gentile. For God shows no partiality. Well, go down a few verses to verse 28. In this section, Paul is showing the difference, so to speak, but also the similarities, the universality. And he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. So we see more happening to this terminology. Well, then the argument comes, well, well then... I guess the Jews really aren't distinct at all. They have no advantage. So then he says in Romans 3, turn the page, verse 1, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, or I went ahead too far, sorry. Verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. You'd think he'd say nothing, but he says much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, if we look down in verse nine, which I just read ahead and and read, he says, what then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So he's drawing a case here that you can't sit back and say, well, I'm a Jew, so therefore I'm exempt or I'm a Gentile and I never knew there was a law. And so looking down at verse 29 of Romans three, he then says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith, that's the Jew, and the uncircumcised by faith. And so it's all by faith. It's not one select group that God deals with differently and another group. No, it's all by faith. Well, then we come to Romans 9, where we spent some time unpacking the doctrine of election, and we read these words in verse 22. Skip way ahead to Romans 9.22. Paul asks, what if God, desiring to show his wrath to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? We see the the sovereign work of God in, in election. He's prepared beforehand. Then verse 24, even us whom he has called Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Well, then we turn to Romans 10, one more page, and we hear this reiterated again. For there is no distinction, verse 12, between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a glorious truth that God will draw by the father's election those that he desires to be saved and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, then we go one more page to Romans chapter 11 and Paul says this, verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, he's speaking of national Israel, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make National Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. This is one of the times where Paul directly addresses the Gentile Christian in Rome. He says, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Wow, so this is all throughout. He keeps addressing this in the book of Romans, and he's doing this not only to make some great theological points that, that we've seen as he's laid out the gospel in Romans 1-11, through but he's also... Um, tying some things together, some loose ends together here in Romans 14. We don't have time today to, to look ahead, but I encourage you to read ahead to Romans chapter 15, where we see Paul's heart for the Gentile on center stage. So you guys read ahead, and we'll study that in a few weeks from now. But within the Roman church and many of the first century fellowships, there were ostensibly two primary ethnic groups that had a lifestyle prior to the saving work of Christ. And those lifestyles were very different. So you have the Gentile Christian. The Gentile Christian was saved out of Greco-Roman polytheistic idolatry, philosophy, and immor- uh, immorality. And so many of them would identify with last week's text. If you were here last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and they would yes and amen that phrase, and such were some of you and say, yeah, that that was definitely my background. These Gentile Christians would have had little to no exposure to the Mosaic Covenant, and that included the feasts, the ceremonies, the Sabbath rests, and they really had no dietary restrictions that we're aware of. So that's the one camp, the Gentile Christian. But then over here, you have the Jewish Christian, and these believers were raised, most of them, in Mosaic law. They learned and observed the Torah. They were worshipers of Yahweh, the one true God. They would, as a a community, they would observe the feasts, the Feast of Booths, of Pentecost, of Passover. They'd make those annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem if they could. They'd also observe Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, and Yom Kippur, which we call the Day of Atonement. And so ceremonial washing was a norm. Sabbath observance each week was just a part of your week. It was a part of your calendar. What was not on the menu for dinner? Bacon, lobster, sirloin steak, uh, rare. We can uh, be assured of that, just to name a few. So just imagine with me these believers coming together, Gentile Christian with Jewish Christian. I want to paint a little scenario for us this morning. They're coming together for a fellowship meal. And someone from the Gentile camp is so excited. He's a new believer, and he comes in with boiled shrimp. Okay? Someone from the Jewish Christian camp goes to reach across the table into the bowl, and yet they see that it's non-kosher, and they recoil. Okay? For the rest of the meal, this woman resorts to vegetables because can't go wrong there. She eat vegetables, and she thinks to herself, wow, Claudius is eating food that makes him unclean. How can he live his Christian life so loosely? But what she doesn't know is that Claudius, he couldn't tell you a single food that was kosher or not. He he was still learning some of the Old Testament ceremonial laws from the book of Leviticus. He was a new believer. And as a new believer, he was excited at this gathering of believers. And he had spent hours the day before out at sea gathering this fresh shrimp to bless his fellow congregation with. And now as he sees Esther and her rude response to his dish, he's sitting back wondering, why is she living so much by the law that Jesus came to free us from? I mean, hadn't Peter been told by the angel years ago that what God called common, we should not call unclean? Why was Esther living her Christian life so legalistically? So we have these two camps. We have the Jewish Christian, we have the Gentile Christian, Uh, In 1 Corinthians, Paul seems to be referring to them as the weak and the strong. The Jewish Christians are more weak and the Gentiles ostensibly are more strong. Those who could not eat certain foods at all and those who could eat anything. But notice what Paul says, again, in verse one. As for the one, so now we have that as our context, as for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, While the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Again, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Leon Morris has this to say. He says, the strong often have a tendency to look down on the weak and regard them as inferior Christians. While the weak knowing that it would be wrong for them, thinking as they do, to do something that the strong do, all too easily hold that the strong are sinning and slip into condemning them. Not infrequently, the weak is the greater tyrant. But then he says this, ironically, both the weak and the strong are falling into much the same error. The weak are clearly in danger of letting works obscure the centrality of justification by faith. And the same is true of the strong, for their attitude implies my faith is better than yours. And that turns us to what we do rather than to what Christ has done for us. It's important for each to realize that God has accepted the other. So what is our response? If we have some strict convictions about a disputable matter, Paul says don't pass judgment on those whose consciences permit them to partake if we're more free in our conscience we aren't to despise those who are considered weak instead we welcome one another because god has welcomed us in fact if you see in the text in verses 1 through 4 there there's this word welcome that's mentioned multiple times and the greek word here for welcome is proslambano and it means to take aside and to warmly receive John Stott points out that it means to welcome you into your fellowship and welcome you into your heart. So this implies the warmth and the kindness of genuine love. In fact, this is the word that was used by the islanders on Malta when Paul and his shipwrecked band end up washed ashore. It says they were welcomed by the villagers. In fact, this is the word that Paul admonished Philemon to give Onesimus Uh, the servant. He needs the same welcome that you would give me. But the most amazing use of this word proslumbano, welcome, is used by Jesus in John 14, 1-3. These are very familiar, very comforting words, especially for many of us who are anxious or near death. Jesus says these words, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And here's the word, I will take you to myself. I will welcome you that where I am, you may be also. See, the word Jesus uses to describe him taking his beloved people into heaven with him is the same word that Paul uses here for us amongst uh, amongst believers we disagree with. So, what sort of welcome are you anticipating uh, as you stand before the Lord and He welcomes you into heaven? I've been in some places where the welcome is a little not, not there. I'm not really welcomed there. I've been in those spots. Maybe it's because I'm among some unbelievers, or, or just some, I have a reputation. So, oh, you know, here's a Christian coming, and I've not. It's been a flat, and a, 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 the hospitality's missing. And that's not the reception you and I are anticipating when we stand before the Lord in glory. We're anticipating a welcome, uh, and that's the same welcome that we're to have for one another. Why? Verse 3, we welcome them because God has welcomed them. In fact, later in chapter 15, verse 7, he says, Therefore, summing up everything, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God. This is the reception we anticipate In future glory. And it's to be that same welcoming one to another, even when we disagree. But it's for the glory of God. In fact, verse 4, Paul asks, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? That word servant is the Greek word for a household servant or slave. And it would be outrageously wrong for me to go and scrutinize someone else's servant. Uh, That would be regarded in the first century as a great insult. So that's not my job. That's his master's job. And so your servant doesn't answer to me. He he or she answers to you. And in the same manner, we have no business to usurp Christ's position in the life of, of the believer. Notice what Paul says. He says at the end of verse four, it is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld. He will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. You see, Christ gives each Believer, his approval, whether they have our approval or not. Uh, I know that this is going to be a little jarring for us, but when we look out at the, the width of church, of the, the body of Christ, and we look back through church history, there are some that we would say, though they have all of the dogma correct, they have the orthodox truth down. There are many of, of the Christians that we look at and we kind of bristle and say, oh, I don't know if I would welcome them. I don't know if I would receive them. I don't know if they'd be able to stand based on my assessment, but we're encouraged here that Christ will able, he is able to make believers stand. We aren't the master. Christ is the master. We might pass judgment and say, if you live this way, I mean, if you live your, your, your faith this loosely, you're not going to be able to stand. But Christ is the master, and Christ is able to uphold every believer's faith. Isn't that encouraging? You've been stumbling. You've been fumbling. You've been trying to walk this Christian life and and continue in your sanctification. You keep keep slipping up and being discouraged by that. But it's so encouraging to know that the Lord is able to make a stand. You see, the emphasis is not on the servant, but on the Lord, who's master of both. And so for this second section, we turn our attention now to the Lord, verses five through nine. And here we see it wasn't just food. There was a matter of dispute. Paul adds another category to the diet, and that is the calendar. Look at verse 5. One person, here we go again, esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Notice the two mindsets. One esteems one day better than another. The other person says every day is a gift of God. So the Jewish Christian, we're going to continue with Esther, she would ask the Gentile Christian, Claudius, at church on Sunday during the greeting time, how was your weekend? And uh, Claudius would say, oh, it was busy. It was really busy. I worked all day yesterday building tents with Aquila. I'll tell you what, he he is a tough boss. And she would put on a plastic smile, and that's great. And then she'd walk away and think, he worked on the Sabbath? I can't believe this. How can he be a Christian who so dishonors the Lord like this every single week? Okay, but Claudius never recognized the Sabbath growing up. Uh, As a new believer, though, he did know that he had a Sabbath rest, which remains for the people of God. He knew that from the book of Hebrews. And he did gather with God's people each and every Sunday to recognize it as the Lord's Day. He may not have known what the Day of Atonement was, but he did understand that Christ was the true and better lamb who takes away the sin of the world, who saves him from the wrath of God. No, the Gentile Christian may not have observed Hanukkah, which really began in the first century, but he did understand that God was the provider and protector of his people. And so notice what Paul says about both of these believers. He says in verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, this is a matter of conscience. I can be convinced in my own mind without pushing my personal conscience conviction onto others. We're going to see more of that next week in the second half of Romans 14. Now, to the church in Colossae, Paul emphasized that we must not let people pass judgment on us. Here we get the emphasize don't pass judgment on others. But in Coloss- uh, Colossians 2, We read that we are to not allow that to happen. In fact, look at these words from Colossians 2. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Notice what he says These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We must look at the substance, not the shadow. The Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. And Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. The feasts that celebrate God in various ways, these are certainly honoring to God. We're not detracting from that. But all of the types and the shadows of the Old Testament sacrificial system are now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm traveling this week to California to attend an intensive for my seminary at Western. And almost every time I leave, when I, one of my rituals, if you would, on the plane is to pull up my photos. Uh, and the flight attendants get stressed that I still have my airplane mode not on. And so I make sure I do that. But I'm looking through, I always look through my photos and just just review my family for a minute. Just, just like pray for them and get in my heart. Also, I don't love takeoff, so that helps me stay grounded a little bit. And so I just, I look at my family, I pray for them, and I enjoy looking at my wife, Jen, my son, Ada, and my daughter, London. But how ridiculous would it be if I were to get home? And instead of sitting with them in the room now that I'm home and enjoying their company, I choose to lock myself in the room and continue to scroll through their pictures and pray for them and talk to my father. That would be ridiculous. And so the picture is fulfilled by the person. The shadow is fulfilled by the substance. So it's wonderful to desire to honor the Lord through special days. But in Christ, we can honor the Lord every day. In fact, notice verse 6. The one who observes the day... I'm going to take a special day to honor the Lord. He observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Why? Since he gives thanks to God. The one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and also gives thanks to God. And then he says this, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live, whether we die, we are the Lord's. See, as a Christian... When I fast, it's not just about my diet. No, it's also about consecrating myself to the Lord who is my Lord. I'm his servant. And, and as a Christian, not just fasting, but feasting. Think about this. When I feast, when I sit down to enjoy a great spread of food, this also is not just about my diet. And it's not just about me getting to gorge on good food. This is also enjoying this great meal to the glory of God. And so whether you fast, whether you feast, as believers, we are not our own. We were bought at a price. We don't live for our own glory anymore. We live for God's glory. And so whether you eat, whether you drink, whether you fast, whether you abstain, we do this to the glory of God. A person by the name of VP Furnish said, all these expressions refer to man's release from the tyranny of a life, this is Martin Luther's term, turned in upon itself preoccupied with its own ambitions and accomplishments and thus alienated from its true destiny. So I'll just address them. If you're fasting merely because of diet or worse, to look spiritual, to look impressive to others, well, that's a life turned in upon itself and not to the glory of God. Conversely, if you just sit down before a great meal and you fail to thank God and acknowledge his goodness to you for that medium rare steak, well, then that's also a life turned in upon itself. You see, earlier, as we were singing together, we read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and a few verses after that section we read, listen to these words about Jesus. Paul says, He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. That's really what verse 9 in our text essentially says. Look at verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. You see, the death and the resurrection of Jesus is connected to the Lordship of Jesus. Uh, Murray says here that Paul is referring to what happened as a result of Jesus' atoning work that brought about what he calls, quote, "the Lordship of redemptive relationship." And so Jesus is the Lord over all who die but he's also Lord over all who live. And so Christ's universal lordship takes precedence over any of our conscience disagreements or our cultural divisions. Again, the focus is not on the servant. When we get our focus on the servant, we begin to quarrel. No, the focus is on the Lord, the master of every servant. With that in mind, look at this final section, the judgment seat. He says again, another question, verse 10, why? Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, if you're taking note, please circle those words, "Pass judgment, in verse 10. This shares the same root word in verses 3, 4, and 10, uh, for past judgment, and also the word esteem in verse five. These are all the same root word, and depending on the context, we can translate this word as to judge, to decide, to come to a conclusion, or to evaluate. In fact, this is the word that's found in the most popular verse in all the Bible with unbelievers. No, it's not John three sixteen. You know what the most popular verse is among all unbelieving. It's Matthew 7, 1. Judge not lest you be judged. I'm sure you've you've heard someone uh, just troll your Facebook page with that or throw you at that uh, back at at your face in the office. So um, whenever we talk about sin in the culture, we get Matthew 7, 1 thrown back at us. In a context here uh, in in Matthew 7, Jesus is speaking about a log in our own eye uh, while we go to inspect the sawdust in our brother's eye. And what Jesus did not say was, just mind your own business. Stop judging people. That's not what he said. What he did say was, first deal with the glaringly obvious sin in your own life. And then once that's dealt with, you'll have clarity to help others through their struggles. John Stott says it this way, whether we're thinking of the weak with all their tedious doubts and fears, or of the strong with all their brash assurances and freedoms, they are our brothers and sisters. When we remember this, our attitude to them becomes at once less critical and impatient. Honest moment, that's where I get. Less critical and impatient and more generous and tender. But see, Paul's emphasis here in Romans is that we already have a judge. Thus, we don't need an additional tribunal because we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. In In verse 11, Paul quotes two verses in Isaiah. First, he quotes Isaiah 49, 18, which says, As I live, declares the Lord. And then Isaiah 45, 23, which says these on the screen. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now, Paul echoes this in Philippians 2, which could be one of the first hymns in Christianity. Remember in Philippians 2, it states that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this is a reference to what God spoke through the prophet Isaiah. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. God is the judge and all will stand before the judgment seat of God. Now what is the judgment seat? What is that? Well, Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians 5.10. This is most likely the same thing. He says, For we must all, speaking to Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, most likely we've all heard of God's throne, his judgment seat, uh, God's tribunal. And uh, when we think of the great white throne of judgment, Uh, we see this in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. I want you to read that later. Revelation 20 mentions the dead being judged and those whose name was not written in the Lamb's book of life being thrown uh, forever, cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Now, many scholars are convinced that Christians will not be standing before God at the great white throne judgment. And there's a few reasons for this. First, we're told by Jesus in John 5.24 that all who believe will not come into judgment. In fact, a few verses later, Jesus says, those who do not believe will go to a resurrection of judgment, not a resurrection of life in John 5. Well, secondly, we learn in Romans 8.1, remember this from our study, that there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the argument is that I don't have to stand before God and answer for my sin and and have an excuse for my sin because Christ has already taken my place. Christ has stood in my stead. I've already been saved from the wrath of God. So I don't need to fear it looming over me as the unbeliever does because Jesus himself bore the curse. Jesus himself received the wrath of God poured out upon him. And so we also learn from 1 Corinthians 3 that the judgment seat of Christ, in the Greek that's the bima seat, is distinct from the great white throne and is a place where believers are not judged, where believers are rewarded. So I want you to think less of judge in a courtroom and think more of judge in a race. Still a judge, isn't it? but it's judging something differently. I like what one master seminary grad wrote um, on this topic. He wrote a thesis on this, and I don't have the quote on the screen, but he says this. He says, the nature of the judgment at the judgment seat of Christ is not to judge sin. No biblical basis for that position exists. The nature of this judgment, the judgment seat of Christ that is, is to judge every Christian's service for possible reward. Jesus has let us see this future event so we can use it as a motivation to serve him now in our bodies, in a manner that will please him and ultimately merit rewards for us. Paul's greatest ambition was to please his Lord, desiring that when his deeds done in the body were tested by fire, most would remain as gold, silver, or precious stones rewarded by Jesus. So as Christians, we need not pass judgment on one another. Why? Because we're all going to stand before Christ and we'll receive his evaluation his commendation, and as we see in the book of Revelation 2 and 3, we also see his correction to the church. In fact, verse 12 tells us that each one of us will give our own account to God. Let me just say this. Your brother in Christ will not be there to vouch for you. And in an encouraging way, your sister in Christ won't be standing by with her list of criticisms to read off to Jesus, just in case he missed it. No, it's just you alone before Christ. We won't be judged for our sin. That's already happened. And Christ said from the cross to tell us, it is finished. What we will be is evaluated for our mindsets, our motives, and our faithfulness. And I long, as many of you do, to hear nothing more than Jesus say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now verses 13 and onward are really the contextual application For the first 12 verses. So if you want to know what the true application of today's sermon is, read ahead. Uh, As I always do, encourage you to read ahead. But let's make just a few quick application points and take-home points uh, from the text today. First of all, we just have a few. First of all, we must make a distinction between what is primary and what is disputable. The Jewish Christians, the weak brothers, were, were not making this a salvific issue. I need to make this important point if they did have that belief that my diet, my days made me justified, well, then Paul would have called them out like he did the Judaizers in Galatia, okay? Here in Rome, they were passing judgment on Gentile brothers in Christ, but they didn't say circumcision is required. It's essential for salvation. No, they understood justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So this wasn't a matter of how you're saved, but how are you pleasing God? It wasn't, how do I get saved? No, it's how do I bring glory to God? Is it through strict observance of the Old Testament ceremonial law, or is it through my freedom in Christ? This wasn't a salvific issue. In like manner, we need to, we need to know what is salvific, what is primary, and what is disputable. I often use the phrase of, of closed handed and open handed issues. Galatia got this wrong, and they made a secondary issue a primary. They swapped hands. Now, Paul says, if a person comes and preaches a different gospel to you, let him be accursed. And so we reject any other gospel as no gospel at all. We never compromise what defines our faith. And we need to fight for that. Uh, We must close our fist and punch. We must fight for the truth. Like Jude says, we contend for the gospel. Uh, And so we can and must judge any Christian who... Uh, Says, I am a Christian, but then they reject the Godhead. They reject the deity of Christ. They reject the scripture as God's word. They reject vicarious penal substitutionary atonement, or they reject the church as God's redeemed people. There's a lot more essential issues than this, but church, we must defend what is primary. Now, when something's not primary, it's not a primary gospel issue, uh, it's secondary, it's disputable, then here's how we proceed we proceed gracefully, carefully, and biblically. We keep what's closed, closed, and what's open, disputable, and we're willing to prayerfully discuss. There's a book by Gavin Ortland called Finding the Right Hills to Die On, and that is helpful on this point. Secondly, we have to discern and dismiss what is our cultural baggage, so to speak, that's my term, when we come to saving faith. I'm not going to go into the details of what that might be for each one of us, but let the Holy Spirit bring conviction where conviction's needed. But like all of us, the Jewish and the Gentile Christians may have brought some of their past, their taboos into their faith and start pushing that on others. For the Gentile Christian, it may have been the polytheistic culture that prompted licentiousness and they could have allowed these liberties to cross into sin. And so the Gentile believer needed to open their Bible and study God's word to discern and reject what God rejects. Their freedom could have taken them too far. But for the weak, that may have been a commitment to keep the traditions of man and the ceremonies of the Mosaic Covenant, and that could have prompted legalism. Michael Kruger defines legalism uh, as as not only salvation by works, but also uh, adding to God's law. And so that's why the Jewish believers also needed to study God's word so they could discern who Christ was and how he had fulfilled the law, so they didn't add new rules to what God had already written. You see, both camps needed sola scriptura. They both needed scripture alone as the final authority. J. Gresham mockin said, dependence upon a word of man would be slavish, but dependence upon God's word is life. The Bible to the Christian is not a burdensome law, but the very Magna Carta of Christian liberty. So this is our standard, not my background, My cultural baggage, it's the scripture. Thirdly, we must seek harmony, humility, and hospitality with one another. So that means that we want diversity in the church, but not divisiveness. I think it's very odd and unhealthy when a church has everyone look the same, dress the same, talk the same. Uh, I think a variety of opinions is good, but those things shouldn't divide us. They should not alienate us. They should advance us. We want to be not independent, but interdependent. We want to be convinced without being contentious with one another. So I'm convinced in my own mind I'm correct, but I'm not going to now make you believe the same way and judge you if you don't. We're to be of the same mind in the church. And so my prayer is that we would seek harmony, humility, and hospitality, that we would welcome one another as Christ will one day welcome us into glory. As we close, may we consider these words preached by Charles Spurgeon. He said, After you and I have done our best to hold our mimic court and have summoned this and that man before us, what is it at its best but child's play? And at its worst, a violent usurpation of the rights of Christ Jesus who alone reigns as lawgiver in the midst of his church today and who will sit as judge on the clouds of heaven by and by to judge the world in righteousness. One day you and I will each stand before the Bema seat, before Christ himself, and we'll behold our God seated on his throne. What a glorious day that'll be. And until that day, may we live each breath for his glory until we see him face to face and receive our reward. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, what a privilege it is to the popular phrase today is do life together. I don't love that phrase, but I get it. What a privilege it is to to together link arms with gospel-minded people. Lord, those who love you, who are created in your image, who desire to please you and to glorify you, to know you and to make you known. What a joy it is to lock arms, to lock shields, to advance the kingdom together. What a joy. But Lord, there are challenges. There are disagreements. There are things we don't perfectly see eye to eye on. And that's okay. We don't need to be tribal and divide and then define what what secondary issues we all like. Lord, today we can seek you and know that as we're joined together with Christ, we're joined together with his people. So Lord, give us not judgment, but grace. Give us understanding of your truth. And Lord, give us harmony and humility as we interact one with another. We thank you, Lord, that you are the righteous judge. And Lord, as we conclude this service today, may we be reminded that you are God, that you're the judge. We behold you in all your glory. Come, let us adore you. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us by the Spirit in these very difficult uh, situations. Give us grace and mercy with one another, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisishoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.